0: We're in Matthew chapter 20, if you'd uh, open your Bibles there this morning or you can navigate on your device while you're navigating, put your device on mute. Don't tell me you don't know how to do that, (laughs) otherwise I make fun of you. Matthew 20 verses 17 through 28 is our text. The topic we'll find there, Jesus describes his ministry to us as that of a slave serving his master. The title of our message, 33 and a half years a slave. Let's have a word of, oh, yeah, you got it, huh? God bless you, sister. (laughs) Free coffee for you this morning, so. Father, thank you for uh, a time that you've set aside for us to spend in your word. I pray that it would be a valuable time, and in order for that to happen, your Holy Spirit is going to have to open up our hearts and our understanding in a supernatural way to your word, which is alive and powerful. And so, Lord, I pray that you would discern between the soul and the spirit this morning, Teach us about Jesus, we pray, in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Sean Combs claims to be an Abbey head. Michelle Obama requested advanced copies of the most recent series. Downton Abbey is what I'm talking about. It debuted in the U.S. in 2011. It's the most popular drama in the history of PBS. The celebrities who claim to be obsessed with it include late-night talk show hosts Conan O'Brien, Jimmy Fallon, and Craig Ferguson, Comedian Patton Oswalt, who live tweets each episode. Country star Reba McIntyre and singer Katy Perry. Harrison Ford has hinted that he would consider a guest role on the program. In the hit show, the Crowley family maintains an enormous stable of servants to care for them in their English estate. The staff is described as being In service, meaning not just employed as servants, but belonging to a class in their society from which they will never rise. In service today means something quite different. In service training is provided by an employer to further your education. It is a kind of on-the-job training to enhance your professional development. All that to say we have very different ideas and attitudes about what it means to be a servant than in times past. When Jesus says in our text, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant, we therefore need a little clarification on exactly what kind of servant he means. He gives it immediately when he says, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Now let's be honest, this idea of being anyone's slave is not appealing. But there is, right from the lips of Jesus, that phrase. And he backed it up saying, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus lived and he died as a servant. It impacts us as believers in that we ought to be dying to ourselves as we live for him. Let's see what that looks like. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus lived and died as your servant. And number two, you die to life as Jesus' servant. Let's take a look at Jesus, first of all, in verses 17 through 19. And the place to start really is in verse 28 because these last words Jesus spoke are extremely important in setting the overall context. He says in verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus here divided his mission into two parts. He said, I came to serve And I came to give my life a ransom. To serve is an excellent summary of his life on the earth prior to the cross. Ransom is an excellent summary of his death and work on the cross. These two parts taken together describe what Jesus did in order to obtain our salvation. In theological terms, they describe what is called the atonement. It's the way sinful human beings are reconciled with a holy God. A simple way of defining atonement is that it is what Jesus did so that we who were separated from God by sin could be at one with him again, atone at one. Jesus' whole life was that of a servant and a suffering servant at that. We're told in Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He endured suffering, obviously, in the wilderness as he was tempted by Satan. He knew suffering in the intense opposition of the religious leaders for most of his three and a half year earthly ministry. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. He wept over Jerusalem, indicating that he frequently was moved to tears. And as the cross neared, his suffering was heightened in the Garden of Gethsemane, then culminated with the hideous things that he endured up to and including the cross. And so he is the suffering servant. He served because he had to do something for the human race before he died for us. He had to perfectly fulfill the requirements of God's law on our behalf as our representative. Adam had represented the human race in the garden, but he disobeyed. Jesus, called in the Bible, the second Adam represented us, and he obeyed. That's why Romans 5.19 can say, For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners— relating to Adam. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous, speaking of Christ. Jesus served in order for us to be able to have his perfect righteousness imputed to us. 2 Corinthians five twenty-one: for he made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This idea of imputed righteousness, it's a banking term or an accounting term. You can understand the cross this way On the cross, Jesus took upon himself your sin and he gave you his righteousness. He took your sin from your account and put his righteousness into your account so that God the Father can see you as being in Christ. He can declare you righteous based on your faith in Jesus Christ and you can be to him just as if you'd never sinned. And so that's what Jesus did in his servant's Uh, as a servant, rather, uh, through his life. Now, the other word at the end of our text, ransom, it's a word we immediately understand as the payment of a price to secure the release of a person who's held captive. The human race was held captive by sin and death and Satan. When Jesus died, he was our substitute who bore the penalty for our sin and therefore conquered both death and Satan. Now, we don't wanna take the idea of a ransom too far. Uh, there is a teaching and it's a false teaching that Jesus paid the ransom to Satan who held the human race captive. That comes from watching too many TV shows and movies where you have to you know, drop the, put the ransom in, a, tea, in a, a drowned bag and put it in the box. What? What did you just say? What if I put it? You know, and you only have 20 seconds to get there. You know? So you need to forget that. Uh, just like parables... Uh, you get the main idea. The main idea of this ransom is that a price needed to be paid for us to be set free, and Jesus is that price. Jesus was that ransom. He wasn't satisfying the devil in his death. He was destroying him and defeating him. So don't take the picture too far. Now think of Jesus' life of service and his ransom as he makes the following remarks to his 12 disciples on their way to Jerusalem for the final time. It's the theology behind what he says. He says in verse 17, uh, it says in verse 17 rather, "'Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, "'took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, "'Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, "'and the Son of Man will be betrayed "'to the chief priests and to the scribes, "'and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. Every detail of what was coming was revealed to Jesus by his Father and then by Jesus to his disciples. The cross obviously was no accident, it was not an afterthought. We might say this there was no other way for God to save us besides sending his Son to die in our place. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But it was not possible that that cup of suffering pass from him, he had to die. After his resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus said to the two disciples he was walking with, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And so the cross is a necessity. The death of the God-man on the cross is what obtains your salvation. Now we've taken a detour into some good theology. Jesus did not stop to talk to his disciples to give them a lesson on the atonement. That's what he was talking about, but his intention was to prepare them for their own suffering service in his absence. He's saying, guys, you remember this whole section that we're in in Matthew, the Lord is talking about the change in plans. Because the Jews were rejecting him and his kingdom, there would be an intervening time between his first and second comings, and he was preparing his disciples for that time. And basically he's saying, just as I am going to suffer, you are going to suffer during this time. And so, verses 20 through 28, you're to die to life as Jesus' servant. Now, the disciples of Jesus are mostly criticized by commentators in this section for misunderstanding his comments about his impending agonizing suffering and death by crucifixion, as if they didn't really listen to what he was saying. Uh, Now, I think they listened very closely, but decided to put the emphasis on what he said last, on the third day he will rise again. I'm not saying they understood the resurrection, clearly they did not but his statement sounded hopeful enough for them to think that Jesus would, at that time, establish the promised kingdom of heaven on the earth. And After all, he had just in chapter 19 told them they would sit on 12 thrones in the kingdom co-ruling the earth with him. As usual, they were in kingdom mode and wanted to know more about those thrones. These guys, all they seemed to think about all the time was the establishing of the kingdom of heaven on the earth. Even after the events that Jesus talks about here, after his resurrection, on his way to the Mount of Ascension, they were still asking, Lord, are you now going to establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth? And so they had a one-track mind. They had tunnel vision when it came to the kingdom. And so whatever it is Jesus was talking about with suffering and all that, he already mentioned some thrones and ruling with him. And so let's get back to that important principle, they thought. And so in verse 20, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him and her, uh, with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. He said to her, what is it you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. Zebedee's sons were James and John. Their mom was Salome. She was one of Jesus' earliest followers. She would be at the cross she was one of the women who went early on the first Easter morning to attempt to anoint Jesus' body. Uh, I see her as a very spiritual woman who was behind the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. And in this case, she wanted what she thought was best, spiritually speaking, for her two boys. Hey, if there's thrones to be divvied up, why not my two boys, one on one side and one on the other? What proud mom wouldn't like that? Uh, and so, I, you know... It's like when O.J. Simpson's mom uh, testified at his uh, trial. Do you remember that? How many remember that? Don't act like you didn't watch it. <laughs> He's such a nice boy. He's always taken care of me. That kind of a thing. And so, you know, and, and people do this, you know, maybe they thought, well, you know, Jesus is, in, is a pushover for moms, you know, and, and if, if we ask him, it's gonna go down differently, but if, my, if mom's there, you know, she's been there from the beginning. So anyway, uh, she comes and asks. The other gospels indicate they also asked, and, and so it was a kind of a conspiracy. The thrones on either side of the main throne were the ones that represented the most delegated authority. After that, you, you, know, you get into lower cabinet positions. You, you get to Bartholomew somewhere, you know. The, so, I sometimes can't even mention all of the disciples, you know. You, there's the big three, and then there's some others, and then, oh yeah, Bartholomew. Uh, and so he wanted, they wanted to be as close to Jesus as possible. Uh, and so in verse 22, Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, yeah, sure, we're able Now, Jesus addressed his comments directly to James and John. He puts the brakes on their thoughts of ruling in his kingdom on the earth by letting them know something was going to precede it. Drinking the cup Jesus was about to drink would precede the kingdom age. The cup was a metaphor in the Jewish scriptures for suffering. To drink the cup was to endure suffering. To further emphasize the coming suffering, Jesus referred to it as a baptism. The word here simply means an immersion they would be immersed in suffering prior to any thoughts of being seated on their thrones. And Jesus is not just talking about him, he's talking about them. He was going to be uh, drinking the cup of suffering on the cross, immersed in the suffering of the cross, but since he's been gone now for almost 2,000 years, we live in this time where the cup of suffering sometimes overflows, where Christians are immersed or baptized in suffering. James and John did not yet understand what we can see so clearly this time between the Lord's resurrection and his second coming. Even though Jesus had said they didn't fully understand what he was saying, they answered his question, we are able. So Jesus says, now you guys don't know what you're asking, so are you sure you want it? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe you should have gotten some clarification first. You know, but they said, yeah, we are able. Now, in retrospect, we see that they would have to be enabled by God the Holy Spirit. No one is really able to drink this cup of suffering and to be immersed in this type of suffering without the enabling of God the Holy Spirit. Um, And so we see that because we have the vantage point of history. Verse 23, so he said to them, "'You will uh, indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with,' But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Now, I'm thinking it was with great emotion that Jesus said this, maybe a lump even in his throat, because he's talking about these guys that he loved, knuckleheads though they were sometimes. These were his men. He loved them, and he was telling them, looking them in the eye, saying, you guys are going to suffer, and in some cases horribly, uh, before you sit on these thrones. Uh, James would die a martyr's death. John would live a martyr's life. Ten years into the church age, James would be arrested and then beheaded by Herod. John would be persecuted, eventually being exiled as an old man to the island of Patmos to suffer as a forced laborer. James was the first of the apostles to die. John was the last. Tradition has him dying a natural death around 100 AD in Ephesus, and, uh, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about John. It's funny how getting older and seeing things gives you some different perspective. But I was thinking, uh, you know, people think about John. Well, he wasn't martyred. Well, no, he lived a martyr's life. At one point, church history says they tried to boil him alive in oil, and, and it, he, he didn't die. And so he was exiled to Patmos as an old man digging salt, we believe. And then, you know, probably by hand, Uh, Wounded and cut every day with only sea water to wash up in I it wasn't a good life I remember when Gino and I went down my dad was dying. He was 93 years old 94 years old and um, um, After he died uh, My family decided not to have a funeral for him not to have a service which I thought was strange I still think it's strange, but I asked my mom about it and my brothers and they said everybody he knows is dead he outlived all of his peers, and it's just us. And I thought, you know, getting old and outliving everybody isn't all that it's cracked up to be, uh, you know, because there's, there's no one to really share much of anything with. And so being this old martyr is not the greatest thing. And so it's one thing to die a martyr's death. You'd almost rather die a martyr's death than live a martyr's life, I guess is what I'm saying. So Jesus, knowing a lot of this, looking at these boys, I'm sure is... is is filled with this emotion. Now his declaration, to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. It's caused a lot of unnecessary confusion. People are always trying to figure out what did Jesus know and what didn't he know as God and as man? Well, I think all he's saying here is that in keeping with the future kingdom, I'm going to be ruling, but I'm still going to be ruling with a servant's heart as a servant to my father. And so I'm not really interested in who sits on my right hand or my left. I'm going to leave that up to my dad to figure out I am submitted to him. And so this entire section, every word of it is crafted so that it's all about serving the Lord in the greatest possible way. Um, There's a hint in Jesus' submission that these positions will be earned, Salvation is free, but rewards and positions in the kingdom and beyond are the rewards of faithful service. And since In-N-Out got built, I'm serving much more faithfully because I want to manage the In-N-Out in the kingdom. Uh, I think they are the only hamburger place that will survive the tribulation uh, (laughs) if I have anything to do with it. So anyway, uh, keep that in mind as we discuss serving. Not the in and out stuff, this other stuff, this Bible stuff. Uh, Serving the Lord has its rewards and they are eternal. So verse 24, when the 10 heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. From a reading of all the gospels, the reason the other 10 disciples were displeased was that they too aspired to positions of great power and authority. And you can tell by Jesus' answer to them that that's what was on their mind. Jesus called uh, them to himself in verse 25 and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Now, we're encouraged in the world to have ambition and to make progress in our endeavors. We're suspicious of folks who don't advance, who aren't promoted, who get passed over. Uh, We we start to wonder about their motivation and their drive. Some uh, organizations will uh, actually, hey, if you don't promote, uh, you're out of here you know, if you can't make the next grade when you're supposed to. And so that's the kind of thinking we have in the world. But when we become Christians, all of that gets turned on its head, at least with respect to the church. A lot of the problems we have in church life in our relationships have to do with our trying to maintain the world's model of leadership in a situation that calls for us to be just the opposite. We're always trying to figure out who's in charge rather than who's washing feet. Uh, There's never really been an argument in the church about who's going to wash feet. Uh, You can do that. Uh, But as far as who's going to make the final decision, we go to blows about stuff like that. Now, the verses that precede these told the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. We saw there that you ought to desire to bear the heat of the day, working hard every moment in the Lord's service. We said that you should be getting stronger and working longer and harder the older you get in the Lord, not dogging it and seeking to rest or retire. If those doing less seem to prosper, it should be nothing to cause you any concern because you work for a generous master and are not being in any way shortchanged by having worked harder and longer. In fact, you should be excited about it. And so in verse 26, Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Servant is a compound word, diakonos. Uh, konos means dust. And it literally translates something like to kick up the dust. And the idea is that you're so busy ministering, running around, that you're kicking up dust. There's a dust storm wherever you go, which is kind of anticlimactic, I guess, because then you have to dust. But anyway, you get the idea. You're moving so fast serving that you're kicking up the dust. It's a general word for servant in the Bible. It's used in a variety of ways, including the technical sense of a deacon. A deacon or a, is a diaconus. Uh, but in some sense, all of us are to be diaconing. Uh, so there is an office in the church of deacon, but all of us are to have the attitude of a deacon. Uh, let's take a detour for just a minute, talk about leadership in the church. Uh, this is a good, uh, it's not in the text, but it's a, it's a good background for that. People have questions about this. There are positions of leadership in the church uh, as we await the coming of the Lord to resurrect and rapture us. There are at least these three, pastors and elders and deacons. You can make a case for uh, those uh, positions of leadership in the New Testament. Now, you may or may not be aware that good men disagree over the exact form that leadership of the church should take. There are basically three forms of church leadership or what is sometimes called church government. One is called episcopal. It's the New Testament term for a bishop or better, an overseer. It typically expresses itself in a church as a pastor is seen as the overseer. He is aided by elders and deacons. Another form of church government is called Presbyterian. It's the New Testament term for elder, presbyter. It typically expresses itself in a church as a group of men, the elders, who co-lead with equal authority. Usually one of them serves as a teaching pastor, and there may or may not be deacons helping them. Then there is congregational government where all the members of a church have the ability and the authority to vote on matters. Now, people get really passionate about the form of government they prefer, and they can't help themselves, it seems, from criticizing every other form of government, going so far to say that theirs is the only one and all the rest of them are uh, unbiblical. I mean, it's a very, you know, you know how Christians are they get passionate about all the wrong things. Why don't you get passionate about preaching the gospel, and we can just have a n- normal discussion about church government. Uh, but they really get it, so if, if you're into elder rule or Presbyterian government, you look at other churches and you think that they're practically the spawn of Satan. You know, that, that if, you, if you, man, if you're not doing what we're doing, you know, you're not. Uh, now, as far as I can tell, there's no one section of scripture that gives us a, a, a hierarchy or the form of church government The New Testament just talks about the men and their giftedness. In fact, Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, he instructs the elders to be good bishops as they pastor. So he lumps it all together. He says, I exhort the elders, the presbyteros, among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd, pastor, the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, episcopo, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And so. What I see in Peter and in the New Testament is that uh, the Lord puts the emphasis on the men themselves, not on a flow chart. More important than outward form a church adopts and follows is the heart of the men God raises up to fill the various positions. God raises up gifted men, pastors and elders and deacons, and they serve together in the ways that benefit the local church. People say, well, no, this form of government is foolproof. You won't have any scandals. You you know, it has checks and balances. I can point to dozens of elder-run churches that are in serious trouble right now uh, because of that form of, not because of that form of government, but because of the men that are involved in that form of government. And I can point to bishop-run churches or congregational churches. You know, a form of government, uh, a bylaw, doesn't keep the wickedness out of the heart of men. You just have to have the right guys who are serving one another and serving the body of Christ. So if you ask me what our form of government is, I hesitate to say it fits exactly into one of those three major categories. I'd like to think we have the best elements of all three, but that bottom line, God has given our church godly men who work together submitting to one another to best serve the needs of the body of Christ. Now, back into our text, verse 27, and whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Now, this word for slave is the familiar word doulos. It's familiar if you, uh, are, you know, have been studying the Bible because it's talked about a lot. It's best translated bond-servant or bond-slave. Since slaves and slave ownership was very different among the Jews than our own understanding, it's best we read an explanation of the bond-slave from Exodus And this is from Exodus 21. It says, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. In the seventh year, he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. (coughs) Excuse me. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Now, there are a couple of things to note about being a bond slave. First, it's a much more serious state than that of a regular slave. I think sometimes we hear the idea of a bond slave, oh, this guy volunteered to be a slave. Well, yeah, he volunteered to be a slave for the rest of his life. He was obligated to be set free after six in the seventh year, but instead he says, no, I don't want to go free. I want to remain a slave for the rest of my life. Second, although it was a voluntary decision, it's wrong to think of our serving Jesus as a type of volunteerism. We should see ourselves as bond slaves having made that decision by virtue of getting saved. I believe that when you receive Christ as your savior and he's paid your ransom and he's redeemed you from all of that, you now are his bondservant. You've gone to the cross as it were and had your ear pierced and now you belong to him for the rest of your life. Now it's true, the Lord doesn't force us to serve him because he's merciful and gracious, but it isn't because we're free to choose to serve him or not. Rather, if we don't serve him, we're disobeying him. By virtue of Jesus being our Lord and Savior and seeing that he paid our ransom, we are bound to serve him all the days of our lives. And according to what Jesus said here and what we see in his life, we should expect serving him to involve a measure of suffering. Now, it may not involve a lot of suffering. I think a lot of, you know, here in the United States, obviously, uh, we haven't suffered uh, tremendous persecution, physical persecution uh, like Christians have uh, in uh, through the centuries. But that's an exception rather than the rule. Suffering, persecution, uh, affliction, they're a part and parcel of the Christian life. No matter how you define it, this idea that you are a slave doesn't sit well. We're celebrating our independence this weekend. We're a freedom-loving bunch. We talk about the price of freedom as citizens of this great nation. It's hard to shift gears and talk about the price of slavery as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. But there's no getting away from it. If you're confused about being a bond slave, all you have to do is look at Jesus. He is your example. He says in verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And as we've said, the whole purpose of his incarnation can be summed up in two words, serve and Give. Let's take a pop quiz regarding our discipleship. If someone looked at my life, if someone looked at your life, would they be able to say it is summed up in two words, serve and give? Or what two words would describe my life or your life? It's a question only you can answer for yourself. Uh, but it's a sincere question. I mean it this morning. I'm not just using it as a technique. Uh, you know, it, it, look at your walk with the Lord, whether it's you know, you've been a Christian a month or 20 or 30 years, and if you had to put a couple of words on your service, uh, where you've been and where you are now, uh, what words would they be? Uh, hopefully it wouldn't be hokey and flaky or something like that. You know, uh, but, And, and if, if, if they're not the words that you desire then let the Holy Spirit prompt you and move in the direction that you want to move in. See, I always come from the point of view that if you're a Christian, and since you're a Christian, you want to serve the Lord. You really want to do these things. You're waiting for somebody to tell you how or to open up a door for you. That can only come from God the Holy Spirit, though, ministering to you, and this is how he does it. We're sitting under the teaching of the Word of God. His anointing is here. I'm not saying that I'm anointed, but his anointing is here. And he is able in our reflection time in a few minutes to reveal to you some words that describe your life. And if they're not the words that you're excited about, then there's, you're alive, you're breathing, there's time for you to make the adjustments uh, to be more like Jesus. And that's what, that's what we all want to be. We want to be more like Jesus because uh, of his beautiful life lived in sacrifice for others. Uh, now we don't want to be runaway slaves seeking our freedom in the world. Jesus didn't serve and give his life a ransom so we could continue to be in love with the world and pursue its idolatry. That's a dead end. Uh, we, it's sad. I, I mean, all of us, you know drawn away by our own lusts and our sins, we, we go back to what Jesus delivered us from. It didn't work the first time. It was leading us to hell. All of our relationships stunk, everything was wrong, but we want to go back and drink from that trough again uh, because of the allure of the flesh and the world and the devil using that. The Lord didn't set us free so that we could get back into bondage. One more thing here. Jesus said he gave his life a ransom for many. We learned in our last study that in English, the word many is usually a restrictive term, while in Greek, it is usually an inclusive term. If I say many people came in English, it implies that a lot of them did not. If I say the equivalent of many people came in Greek, it implies that practically everyone did. But the best way of understanding this is that Jesus spoke of many being called and few chosen. And what that meant is that there were only two categories of the whole. So there's a whole group of people, it's the human race, and within that human race, there are many and few. Uh, the many are actually everyone that's called and then the few who are chosen. And so this isn't a restrictive term. This isn't a term where there's some people that aren't called or who can't get saved. Uh, the, the, Jesus is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. And the only question is, are you still part of the many that he died for and have not activated his salvation in your life by receiving him as your savior and coming into the few? If you haven't accepted him, you can come to the Lord, to the cross, have your sins forgiven. Just know that at the cross, you're going to have your ear opened uh, and you're going to be his bond slave. Uh, But that's a great thing because if you're a believer, it's not really voluntary and there's a price to pay, but in the end, the Lord's well done, good and faithful servant is going to be the most precious thing that you've ever heard. Let's pray together.